Welcome to Grace Church. My name is Freddie. For those of you who don't recognize me, don't be surprised. I am not actually on staff at Grace, but the elder board graciously invited a few people from another local church, Northview Community Church, down the road, uh, to step up and help Josh over the summer. So I'm here this week, and then in a few weeks, you'll get another guy named David. Um, it is my pleasure to be here as you continue your sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 7 today, uh, but before we get in there, I kind of want to set the scene. Uh, since you don't know me, you probably don't know that I'm married. I'm married. been married for six years, and we celebrated six years this past weekend on Sunday. And it was a joyous occasion. I was very grateful. Uh, a lot has changed in the first six years of marriage. My, my voice has gotten deeper. My sh- shoulders have gotten broader. I hit puberty. So a lot, a lot has changed for me in, in the first six years of marriage. And life is really, really good. One thing that has not changed is we still do not have children which means that I am an expert at parenting everyone else's. And my nieces and nephews get Uncle Fred stepping in and teaching them. And most of the things that I try to remind them of are kind of your generic morality type stuff, right? Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, don't do that because that's not loving your neighbor when they punch each other in the face. Or more, like even more generic, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These phrases are part of our general language. Like these aren't unique to Freddie. They're not unique to Christians even. It's just out in our culture. Everyone knows these because they're helpful. They're a good way to teach people how to live. What most people forget is the person who said these sayings, the person who actually preached them for the very first time was Jesus. And Jesus wasn't just teaching people how to live, teaching them how to be better parents. He was saying these things in the context of making massive claims about himself, that he believed he was God. And as we work through John chapter seven, we're going to get to another one of these sayings of Jesus, where he explicitly teaches people and claims something about himself that no one else has ever claimed and no one else has ever backed up. Jesus believed himself to be God and proved it. So today we're going to walk through the passage through John chapter seven. We're going to focus on verses 37 to 44, but as we walk through the passage, We're going to go kind of verse by verse, and we're going to have two lessons at the end. So kind of one big idea, two lessons at the end. So the big idea is this, very simple. Let all who are thirsty draw near. If you were walking up to Jesus and you lived through this scene that John chapter 7 captures, that is the one thing you should walk away. Let all who are thirsty draw near to Jesus. So John chapter 7, starting in verse 37, he who has ears, let him hear. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they, so the people, heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we started at John 7, 37. We're starting halfway through a chapter and we're starting in chapter 7, of a book that contains 21 chapters. So we, we are jumping into a story that is well on its way. So I want to kind of go backwards and, and recap everything 
up to this point. So this person who is saying these words, let all who are thirsty come to me, Jesus, this is not the first time that we meet him. We met him all the way back in chapter one as John started talking about him, teaching us who this person was. Jesus began his public ministry in John chapter two with turning water into wine. And then he traveled around to places. He healed an official's son. He healed a man who was born crippled at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter five. And then in John chapter six, he feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. He's been doing amazing, miraculous things. This guy, he, it's kind of a show and people are following, people are flocking to him because of the amazing things he's doing. But he's not just doing amazing things, right? Like it, for us, it's tempting to focus on, on just the things that Jesus did, right? The miracles, and John calls them signs. These signs and wonders that draw us in because we've never seen anything like that before. But Jesus came to preach. Mark 1.38 explicitly says that. Jesus says, I have come to preach. He needs to go to all the villages to preach. That's why I came. And in John, we have some amazing things that Jesus said. In chapter four, when he meets a Samaritan woman, he tells her, he's telling her things about her whole life, and, and she's... She's amazed by this man. And she tells him just an offhand comment. Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll teach us everything. And Jesus looks her dead in the face and says, I am, I'm, I'm the Messiah. And she's amazed and she runs and tells all her friends and a revival springs up in this Samaritan village because Jesus just told her, I, I, I'm God. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. So Jesus was preaching. In a, in a different situation, after the healing at the pool of Bethesda, he heals this man who's been crippled his whole life and he healed him on the Sabbath and the Pharisees get in his face and they're pressing him. They're like, you don't, you don't follow our laws, man. You, you can't be from God because you're not obeying the law. And Jesus looks at them and he says, my father is working and I am working until now. He's claiming to be the son of God, claiming to, he, he's not ignoring the rules of the Sabbath. He's the one who made the rules. So he knows what they mean. And they're angry and they want to kill him because he's preaching things. He's saying outlandish things about himself. And then right after he multiplied bread and fed 5,000 people, the people are like amazed. They're, this has never happened before. Jesus looks at the crowds around him and tells them, no, 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 you just had real bread. But let me tell you about spiritual bread. I, I am the spiritual bread. I am the bread of life. And Jesus claims to, to then be the source of salvation. I, Jesus hasn't just been going around doing cool things. He's preaching too. And the things he's saying while he's preaching are not generic, vague, I hope you listen to me because I'm a nice teacher. He claims to be God. He claims to be life. And as the gospel of John progresses, those claims are gonna get more and more and more explicit. And when we get here to chapter seven, that's where we're at. We're at the point now where Jesus is gonna make his most public profession yet, his most public sermon where he says things to people, where he claims things about himself. And it's in this context that our story really begins. John chapter seven begins with the, the feast of booths. And John, or Jesus and his brothers are gonna go to the feast and his brothers are saying, Jesus, you need to go and you need to preach. If, if you believe these things about you, that you're God, that God is your father, that you're the Messiah, you need to tell people. So they're in his face. They're telling him this and Jesus refuses. He's like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do the things the way that you want. I have a plan. I have something that I'm here to do. The father has given me a mission and I'm on it. And as we begin this story in John chapter seven, the, the tensions in are palpable. The people are there for a feast and the Pharisees were told way back in um, chapter five, verse 18, that they're seeking to kill Jesus He's not following their laws. He's drawing people to himself. They're seeking to kill him. And then when chapter seven begins, we're told they're still seeking to kill him in verse one. So people are undecided about who Jesus is. 
Some people have been following him. Some people have not been following him. Most people have heard about him. And when our story begins, the Pharisees are still looking for an opportunity to kill him. And at this feast, Jesus is, is described in a, in a few different ways. So the people say a few things. Some say, well, he's, he's probably possessed by a demon because he thinks we're trying to kill him. He thinks the Pharisees are trying to kill him. He sounds like a madman. He's, he's paranoid. He's a weirdo. And then there are some people who are saying, well, no, no, no. He's a good man. Like he fed 5,000 people. He healed a man who was born a cripple. Like bad people don't do that. This is a good man. And some people say, no, well, he can't just be a good man. He's healed people. And he's said some pretty interesting things. Like this is clearly a prophet of God and not just a prophet, but the prophet pointing all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses had prophesied saying, I, I lead Israel right now as we're going through the promised land or going to the promised land as we, as we have escaped Egypt. But one day someone is coming after me who is going to lead the people on a greater exodus, who is going to lead the people into a true relationship with God. And, and they're saying, I think Jesus is that guy. Jesus is, is the new prophet like Moses. But some even go further and they, and they say, could this be the Christ? As this man is saying these things and doing these signs, could he be the one we've been waiting for? Could he be the one who comes to save us? And our scene shifts to Jesus finally arriving. Jesus shows up and he doesn't show up and just kind of hide in the crowds. He goes straight to the temple. And in the temple, he's teaching people. And they're surprised. They're like, why is, why is he here? This guy, this guy's teaching like he knows his stuff, but he's never trained under a rabbi. No one taught him the book of the law. He's just memorized it. This guy has learning. They're surprised by him, impressed by him, amazed by him, but they still are unsure on how they should really react. So Jesus is in the temple teaching people. The Jews are still seeking an opportunity to get him. And that brings us to verse 37, where we start on the last day of the feast, the great day. That's when Jesus stands up in front of everyone at the temple and proclaims his famous phrase. But we have to understand what the Feast of Booths is all about to really understand the significance of what Jesus is saying. The Feast of Booths was the third pilgrimage feast. So the Jewish, the Jewish calendar was built around feasts that commemorated different events in Jewish history where God had come through and rescued his people, where God had delivered them from, from oppression or provided for them. And the Feast of Booths was the third one of the great feast. So there was three significant ones and four also significant, but less um, Jerusalem-centric. So these, the three big ones, people would actually travel to the city of Jerusalem as, as a part of this celebration. It's a seven-day feast, and it was meant to commemorate two things. The first is the harvest, because it, it came at the end of the year. It was the end of the Jewish calendar, and they were commemorating, well, we have grapes, we have olives. Like, God has provided another year of, of bounty for us. Praise be his name. But it also commemorated God delivering his people. In the Feast of Booths, the people were to remember that God rescued them from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God raised up Moses and sent Moses to go rescue them. And Moses led them out into the wilderness. So God rescued them from slavery. But he didn't leave them to die in the wilderness. As they're walking through the desert and they need water and they need food, God provided for them. And in the Feast of Booths, the people commemorated specifically two separate events where God provided water for his people. They escaped slavery 
The story's not great if they escape slavery and then die in the desert. They need water. They need life. And God provided for them. Water from the rock in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20. So in this feast, Jewish people are remembering, man, God has provided for us already in the, in the harvest. But man, we remember when God provided salvation for us in water in the desert, when he dragged us out of Egypt, out of slavery. And we're awaiting a future day when God will deliver his people once again. So we celebrate this feast. That's the context of this feast. And the way it worked was for seven days, the people had a, a, a procession and they would build these little booths made of, of leaves and of like branches with leaves. And, and they would celebrate that like in the desert, they had lived under branches. They had lived in tents. They were not part of an established city and, and, they, and God provided for them. So they would do this. They'd live in these tents for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they would, they would kind of tear everything down, tear down the tents, and it would be a big party. Well, when Jesus says on the last day, on the greatest day, it, there's some debate as to whether it's the seventh day or the eighth day. In the end, it doesn't make a huge difference. What, what is significant is this feast has, it's been going on for six days or for seven days. And then Jesus steps up and this is what he would have seen just before he spoke. What people would do is they would stand in, around the temple and they would watch as, or sorry, they would stand around the pool of Siloam and then some would stand around the temple and there would be kind of a procession the whole way. And priests would go and they would fill a golden flask with water from the pool of Siloam, which we're gonna get to in John nine. But at this point, it's just a pool. That's all we know is just water that feeds this city. And they would take this water and they would carry it. And people would be singing Psalms as, as they approached the temple. And when they got to the temple, the people would recite Psalm 118. And then they would wave a, a lulab, which is a willow and myrtle, twi myrtle twigs tied around a palm and fruit to commemorate the harvest and to commemorate life. They're, they're waiting for the day when God will give life to his people, when God will fully rescue them yet again. And then the priest would pour out the water around the temple, around the altar in the temple. And, and this was done at the, during the morning sacrifices. The whole point of all this was, God, would you send your water again? Would you pour out life on your people one more time. And this has been happening for six days or seven days. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and raises his hands in the middle of the temple when people have just watched the water poured out. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is an amazing thing. This is a shocking thing. It's shocking that anyone would consider themselves so bold as to step in and disrupt the ceremony. Don't they know that God will deliver his people one day? Show some respect. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're looking at him. The one that God has sent to deliver his people yet again, he's standing right here. And the people obviously are surprised. They react. How, how could Jesus claim this about himself and then the phrasing that he uses, right? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This takes us directly to Isaiah 55, verse one, which reads as follows. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah is saying God is offering salvation to anyone who would come. Just come and drink. But Jesus is not just saying, come and drink. He's saying, no, 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 you can get that water from me. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, God will one day send the water. God will one day send life. And Jesus stands in front of the crowds and says, I'm right here. 
come to me and I will give you that water. The next phrase that he uses in verse 30 is out of his, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This one's a little tougher for us to, to read because it, it's not actually a direct Old Testament quotation. Jesus is combining images from the, from the scripture. So he says, like the scriptures say, he's speaking generally. As the Old Testament has prophesied, God will send his rescue to his people. God will step in to human history. God will make things right. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the one who gives you that thing. The, the clearest indication comes to us, or the, the clearest direct quote would be Ezekiel 47, verses one to two, nine, and then 12. It's 12 verses. I'll read the ones that are the most significant. So starting in verse one, Ezekiel seeing a vision about the temple. Then he, so an angel, brought him back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from the, below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. So water is going from the temple. You're like, why is that significant? Do they have a plumbing leak? I don't understand why this matters. And then the angel continues, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there. And then the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the rivers goes. Isaiah is saying, this angel is telling Isaiah, no, no, this water actually can transform. It changes salt water into fresh water. It brings life wherever it goes. And then culminating in verse 12, and along the river, along the, the way this water flows, on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for every food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. These aren't apple trees and peach trees and pear trees. What he's saying is like the harvest will never end. Month after month, fresh fruit. This river, it's, it's miraculous. It gives life wherever it goes. And Isaiah is, is learning this prophecy and the angel's telling him, it's gonna flow from the temple, from this building, from the center of your faith. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's flowing from me. And then John actually clarifies because John tells us, he spoke this about the spirit, which had not yet been received. What Jesus is saying is, I'm gonna give you something. I'm gonna give you something that water is gonna flow out of you. Water that, that, that actually gives life to you, to those around you. Jesus is pointing forward to something amazing. And the people obviously, they, I mean, they have to react. These are two outlandish sayings that this man has said. He's been preaching, he's been doing his signs and wonders, but this, this is too much. This is the most public thing he has done. He's at a feast, thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem, pilgrims in Jerusalem, and he stands up in the middle of the temple after the ceremonies and says this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There are two things, I think, if we take a step back, there are two things we need to understand about this entire scene. The public nature of Jesus' claims and the theological significance of them. So the the public nature of them, it, it needs to, we need to understand that this didn't happen in the corner of nowhere. Jesus did much of his ministry in Galilee, in Samaria, in the backwoods, right? Out in the boonies. That's, that's where Jesus had performed some of his signs. So it, people had heard about him, but they ha might not have actually seen him. 
And when we get to John chapter four and he preaches to the Samaritan woman, he says one thing to one person. I'm the Messiah, but he only tells her in a conversation. To the rest of the people, he just preaches. When he says, I'm the bread of life, he says it to a huge crowd, but it's only one crowd. And the way that story ends is a whole bunch of people leave because Jesus then starts saying other crazy things like you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So people are walking away from him. So in most of Jesus' ministry, the, the audiences that have heard him preach are really small or people that have actually rejected him. And here in John chapter seven, we have the clearest statement to date. Jesus, a year and a half into his ministry, in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Jerusalem, at the last feast of the year, stands up in front of everyone and proclaims boldly that everyone would hear, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus' statements are very public. No one in Jerusalem would have been able to ignore what had just happened, the sermon he had just given. And that's the point. Jesus wasn't trying to hide. He came to preach. And that's what he did. He's publicly proclaiming who he is. But the theological significance of it is as important, actually. Because it's not just like Jesus is saying some really nice things. I came to give you a better life. I came to, you know, make you feel good about yourself and give you some self-esteem. He's, he's got way bigger goals than that. He's claiming that actually God is going to send water. God is going to send life. And I am the source of that life. Jesus is claiming to be a mediator between humanity that is in desperate need of life and God who can give it. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the guy. Come to me and I will give you water. Scripture says, out of you will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to give you the spirit, John clarifies. When, when Jesus leaves us, he sent the spirit and from within you will flow life. God is not just going to give you water once. He's going to fill you with his presence so you have life eternal. The theological significance of what Jesus is saying is massive. He's not just preaching a really nice sermon in language that the people would understand. He's changing the whole game. Everything is going to change according to him. You'll, you can have God's presence inside of you. The point of this is that no one can interact with Jesus. No one should have been able to interact with Jesus up to this point and not believe that he claimed to be God. And at this point, it's explicit. He claims to give life. He is the source of the water that gives life that Ezekiel prophesied about, that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus is claiming to be God himself. This is a huge thing. He's either a blasphemer or he's actually God. But we, we have this propensity in our culture to accept the things he says, to admire the things he does, but ignore who he is. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. That this whole story, the way it's written, the way it transpired, Jesus is publicly proclaiming himself. He's not here to gain some followers. He's not here to get on some t-shirts or make some tweets. He's here to bring salvation. And as we get to the end of the gospel of John, you'll see how he does it. But at this point now, Jesus explicitly has claimed some things about himself. The crowds are there. Revival breaks out, right? Unfortunately, No. You have the same situation that you had before. At the beginning of chapter seven, you have mixed reactions from the crowd. He's a madman. He's the prophet. He maybe he's the Christ. And after Jesus explicitly says, I'm God, I can give you life. God should have struck him down for such blasphemy. Nothing happens. 
So either he is God or he's crazy enough to think he is, but he's just a liar. The whole passage is set up. No, no, no. He's not crazy. He is God. And the people are still stuck. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's Christ. He's probably just demonically possessed. They understand what he's saying. They understand what he's doing, but they don't know who he is. In this passage, they understand that Jesus is offering ice cold water when it's 37 degrees outside and you're standing with no shade. And they're like, man, I see that water. I see that cup. It's full, full of ice. I'm very thirsty. I don't like your drink though. I don't want to drink. Which brings us to the lesson. The lesson in this whole story, let all who are thirsty come to drink. This passage is not hard to understand, folks. You look at it, you look at what Jesus did, you look at what Jesus said. Thirsty people are welcome. This passage, the message of Jesus, the good news of salvation is for thirsty people. Not a lot has changed between, well, actually a lot has changed between Jesus first preaching this and our day, right? I'm coming to you through a video camera via the internet. So a lot has changed, but the human heart remains the same. And our propensity to hear who Jesus is, see what he does, and still reject who he actually is remains. And you have in this passage, you have people who know who he is, but they're like, well, who understand what he's saying, but they're like, I'm not thirsty. You have people who understand what he's saying, but they say, well, I am thirsty, but I just don't like you because you break the Sabbath because you spend time with Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors. I, I just don't, I'm not ready to, I, I'm not ready for that. There are people who are thirsty and they do want Jesus, but they're not sure they're ready to join this, this guy who's, you know, the Jews are opposed to. Like, I'm not sure I'm ready to be part of your followers and, and face the persecution that followers. There are people who understand who he is. They've come to follow him, but they don't know if they're going to continue. And, you know, if we're honest, that kind of describes our churches. There are people who understand who Jesus is, but they're not interested. There are people who understand who Jesus is and hear his message and actually maybe believed it, but now they're like, my life is not going the way I want. COVID has ruined everything. My relationships aren't what they used to be. My work has really let me down and I don't have enough money and the good life, gone. I don't know if this Jesus guy really is for me. He came to give me life? My life sucks. And there are some who, yes, I'm following Jesus, I'm in, but man, life is really hard and I don't know if I'm really gonna keep doing this church thing, man. I don't know if I'm really gonna, when we're finally allowed to gather, I don't know if I wanna show up. The variety and the reactions to, to what Jesus says and what he does has not changed. That describes our world today. But the human condition remains the same. We're still rejecting who God is. And for us, n- nothing really has changed. We are still in need of life. What Jesus came to offer, life eternal, we still need. You and me, the problem with us, the problem with every human who has ever lived is that we have a spiritual disease that needs to be healed. And spiritual diseases can only be healed by spiritual cures. It doesn't matter how you eat. It doesn't matter how much you train. You're still gonna die. So we need someone to save us, to cure us of this disease that has a much higher terminal rate than COVID-19. We need someone to step up who can actually provide for us. And Jesus claims to be that. Jesus claims, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. They're not gonna drink just water. They're gonna drink water that gives life. And in this person, we have someone who is able to actually do what everything else promises. He could actually give you life. 
Nothing else actually can. And to make things even better, the moment a person drinks, the moment a person comes to Jesus and says, save me, save me from my spiritual condition, my sinfulness, in a moment, they're saved. And John, chapter 30, or John 7, 39 tells us the spirit fills them and life is within them and actually bubbles out. Of, they have so much life in them that it actually flows out. They pass from death to life. This is available to any person who is thirsty. All you have to do is be thirsty. Jesus is proclaiming salvation to anyone who would come. So come to him and drink. If you've been around the church and you're like, I like it, but I don't, I don't know how I feel about Jesus. I don't know if I'm ready to, you know, be weird and like follow him to be a disciple, as John likes to say. Why not today? Today is the day when Jesus has stood before you through John chapter seven and said, come to me and drink. So come and drink. Come and accept Jesus into your life. But the reality for the church, at least, is that there are many here who have have come, who have drunk from Jesus. And the lesson for us is that satisfaction is guaranteed. What Jesus is saying isn't just kind of a spiritual concept that he'll give you some water and you won't be thirsty. What he's saying is, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is gonna live inside you. God himself is gonna fill you with his presence. As we look through the scriptures, what we learn about this spirit is the spirit created the world. John 1, 3 tells us that the spirit was present in the creation of everything and through him, everything was created the Spirit gives life in this in John 6, 633. In John 6, 63, we read that the Spirit is actually the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus is saying, no, no, this Spirit that created the universe, the Spirit that gives life, I'm filling you with. Romans 8, 11 tells us this Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. When I tell you satisfaction is guaranteed, you don't just have a nice warm feeling because Jesus saved you. You have the presence of God inside of you. And that should make you keep coming back for more. The reality for us is a lot of us come to Jesus when we hear him call out and we drink and we're so grateful that he saved us from our sin. And then life gets really busy and we do our normal thing and we go to our job and we raise our kids and we just do life and we're distracted. But if Jesus came to offer you life, and all you have to do is draw near. And actually inside of you, the Holy Spirit produces more life. Man, it should make you hungry. It should make you just as thirsty as the day you first believed. So we, we should keep coming back. We should keep coming back. One of the ways that we can keep coming back is to read. Read the scriptures so you can interact with Jesus and see everything that he's ever promised you to see how he actually did come to save you from your sin. So you fully understand your condition and you fully understand his salvation. We should want more and more and more of God's presence. I once heard a preacher tell a, a funny joke, which I don't often tell jokes, but hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, he, he made a comparison. Who is more satisfied? A man with 10 kids or a man with $10 billion? And everyone obviously says, well, the man with $10 billion, because who doesn't want money, right? You can Money doesn't buy happiness, but it buys jet skis and everyone smiles when they're on a jet ski. But then, you know, he flips the joke. He says, well, the man with 10 kids, because he doesn't want any more. The man with $10 billion would absolutely love more. Right? The point of the joke 
is that we often put our satisfaction in the wrong things. But Jesus actually has a little bit more in common with that 10 billion. Because if, if you have the spirit inside you and you've seen Jesus and you've drank the water that gives life, you should want way more. You should want a lot more. So I challenge you, take it up and read. Draw near to the one who gave you life. Jesus doesn't mince words in this passage. He offers salvation to anyone who would come. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus was and is God, and he offers water and life to anyone who would believe. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word and to present Jesus. Lord, would you help us draw near and drink from the water that gives life? Father, we, we're so distracted so often, but by the power of your spirit that resides within us, you can make us hunger again. You can make us thirsty. So Father, make us thirsty for your presence. Make us seek out who you are, knowledge of you, that we might love you better through your word. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.